This is Danny from Output 111. This episode features music from our song Mad Godiva and the Rolling Corpse, as well as a synth jam called Bad Blade Runner, and a remix of the song Corral by Pierre Zulai. After the music, we're joined by Jackie and Maddie of the Indie Heads podcast to discuss their reaction to the song and R plus 7 by One of Tricks Point Never. Pierre Suvai joins us afterwards to discuss Corral and how the piece was originally written.
Exactly. Exactly. Just pitched clapping. There's always an opportunity for music. Always an opportunity for ambient musicians to to use everything and anything to their advantage. Uh, um, Maddie, I don't know if I sent it to you. I think it was on Eva's page. The the meme that was like ambient dad was like, we really needed that rain last night for my sampling. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, Matt, Anyways. before we had you on, we had one piece where I recorded, like, the the lake by my apartment froze over, and then it got a little bit too hot, so it broke into crystals. I definitely was that asshole who was like, I'm going to put this. <laughs> I'm sure that was cool, though. Yeah. Cooler than just, like, a, 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 like a stream kind of burbling. You know, it's, like, one, one step more creative. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Maddie, Jacqueline, what did you think? Uh, I really dug the track. I think the big thing for me was sort of the use of, of vocals, which was very interesting. I think ties in pretty well to like the, the album that we're talking about. It, it definitely, I think like the last one you had me listen to on, on the episode that I was on previously, you know, it was very like kind of longer, slow burn. And I think this definitely kind of, um, comes to the surface a, a lot quicker, uh, with w- what it's pulling. But of course I, I don't know shit about electronic music. Jackie here knows way more. If you go to, um, like, I, I feel like 50% of the Bandcamp pages you go on for random electronic stuff, there's a good chance Jackie has bought something that, oh, that, that yeah. you're, you're checking what was, out. What was, I'll, I'll pull up Ian's um, message that he that he had in the in the, the electronic music chat where it's like every day Jackie posts in here about someone whose name is like DJ Cup XOXO2 or whatever. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, that's a real artist I listen to. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a bit. No, but uh, I I like this a lot. I thought it was very cool. And like Maddie was saying, we picked the record that we wanted to bring to talk about just because I wanted to pick something that I felt like would make sense for this podcast, but also something I knew Maddie had some sort of context or history with so that he could sort of participate. And so I had the idea of picking R plus seven, not even knowing that like there would be weird kind of parallels with the sort of disembodied choral vocals and the way that that's being worked into an ambient piece. I thought it was really cool. I definitely liked, I specifically really liked kind of the ending and the way it's sort of like, there's this very like anxious middle period of it where it gets very like kind of queasy and uneasy and then it, but then it sort of like unfurls into a little bit more tranquil of like an ending place and I really like the way it progressed over the nine minutes. I thought it was really cool. And I especially like, there's kind of this droning, like, underbelly of the track that's going the whole way. And the way that that is sort of, the the, cor- the choral vocals and the droning synths underneath are kind of constantly, like, warbling into each other. Like, there will be sections where one kind of overtakes the other and that the tones are kind of blending together in interesting ways. And I thought that that was, like, the coolest part of the track for me was that kind of like seasick feeling that the two things were kind of creating with each other. Yeah, it's really cool. The thing that I really liked, I listened to it maybe about 20 minutes before we jumped on. I listened back to it and I like, like I said, offline gene edited this, this track together and kudos to gene. You have this really incredible sense to take something that's very pretty in an uneasy way. And that's the piece by, Pierce, uh, Pierce um, I think about four bass clarinets. They're playing in and out of each other. Oh, I see. That makes sense. Yeah. It was definitely like a major chord that in or a major scale while bringing in some chromatics to get that sense of unease. 
And what I really appreciated what Gene did is he took our much angrier and dark sounding song and a piece like a, a piece that I wrote on my cheap synth where I tried to emulate the Blade Runner uh, sound and um, just weave them in and out in such a way that it, re- it blew my mind listening to it again, just hearing the things fade out so gradually but perfectly. Like it wasn't, it didn't feel ham-fisted in, in the fades. I agree, yeah. There, there was a real kind of natural development to all of it. Like it never felt like there's like, okay, now we're ramping up this thing. Like there was a real nice sort mm-hmm. of ebb and flow to it. And uh, and Piers did request that uh, we put on on their um, on their clarinets a series of really strange and pitched delays at the very end. So like, there was a lot of back and forth for just catching the right level of weird on that because I definitely wanted to hear more of the original bass from the uh from the song that we put together and they were they were very gently like coaxing me like no go harder go go harder and uh like the results were a lot cooler than i was expecting i was worried it was going to be too like weird for the sake of weird yeah i really um it's interesting that they're bass clarinets because i didn't notice that necessarily but i kind of did because um callie malone i don't know if you've spent much time with her work but her last two records in particular living torch she started out um she's this sort of ambient drone artist who actually uh, had our indie indie heads podcast album of the year last year her album living torch and her previous records were more uh focused on organ sounds because she actually got her start as a musician tuning organs like she got really fascinated with like the kind of micro tonalities you could get from that instrument and creating music out of that but her newer music is more written for an ensemble of musicians to perform as opposed to her just doing it by herself and there's a lot of bass clarinet in living torch and also in her new record which is uh, i always forget the name of it it does spring hide its joy so um that was interesting and i think the bass clarinet does have a a kind of particular tonality to it that makes it really interesting for pairing with a synthesizer like that because there's just like like that kind of like you're saying the kind of chromatics and kind of um uneasiness that it'll kind of sway in its tone from the note that it's kind of centering the pattern around and that that works really well with these kind of synthesizers that are warbling in a similar way sorry i uh i just had to double check something because i was like did I say bass clarinet and mean bass sax? And I had to like look back like a, a baritone sax and didn't want to sound like a dumbass. <laughs> I do the yeah, same just, thing too. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> it's all brass. It's all it's all brass. It's all the same. It's bass clarinet is in the tags of the bandcamp page. We'll go with that. We'll go um, with it. But I wanted to toss it over to Gene to talk about two things. One, just like your approach, as much as you can recall. To, to mixing these pieces together and what you initially wrote that became our song um, that was featured in this. Like our, our song, Man Godiva and the Rolling Corpse, is what was, was our base for this piece that we added everything else onto. Um, and on our album that we're putting out, it'll be the sort of midpoint, uh, like a song in three parts that gets very strange. And uh, this middle section that just has this uh, terrifying noise is just this audiovisual piece that gene created and put on youtube um that has you know in my opinion interesting origins and i just hope gene have a shot to uh tell us <clears throat> i can definitely speak to your first question probably better than the second one um just because you know time happens but as far as the mixing i i feel like i've been doing this a lot recently but 
trying to make it feel like you're walking through, you know, a house party. One room has, you know, people listening to, I don't know, whatever people listen to these days. Like you've got a rap room and then like you walk past, you know, guys listening to ACDC or whatever. And just sort of the transition, how it bleeds into the hallway is kind of how I've been um, approaching things accidentally. I don't know. That's how I interpret it anyways. I like it. The the uh, we have confirmed it's a bass clarinet. We're going with confirmation. Okay, because yeah. I want to make sure I sound really intelligent. So I don't. My my, my source is okay. Me bass perfect. Clarinet is, is, the, is the instruments. <laughs> it, it's it's amazing the beauty that that added to an otherwise kind of uh, gray piece. Um, but listening to each of those tracks independent of any context is also really eerie. It's almost like hearing a, an isolated vocal track. And uh, I, I think, well, I don't know, maybe it's it's unique to people that had the the, the luck of hearing it those, those uh, lines on their own, but the kind of eeriness, I think, exists now in the overall piece, even though it adds beauty to an otherwise ugly bit of uh, shit. It's still, yeah, it's sort of like a an anxious lingering that it added to it which I, I really appreciated those pieces being sent to us. Definitely. Um, I don't know. Does that end? That, that makes a lot of sense. I was just going to say that, like, without getting all the way into our discussion of the other thing, of the One Attraction Point Never album, that's a record that I think is constantly, like, juxtaposing these different sounds against each other and something that One Attraction Point Never is obsessed in with all of his music. He particularly talked about for Replica, but he's talked a lot about how he's obsessed with kind of like our association with sounds and the idea that you're never really just hearing what the sounds are you're also hearing all of your kind of like learned associations with that sound like when you hear a synth tone right like you think like oh that sounds cheap or oh that sounds like this kind of song or oh like you have those sort of or oh that sounds good because i have these conceptions of what good means from your sort and it's, and so he's constantly like trying to juxtapose things and make things and i think a lot of that record is about these sounds that are pretty but are being delivered in this really unsettling way, right? These things that are like, well, this sounds nice, but why do I feel like tense right now? Um, and I think that, that this piece sort of does that, like you're saying, because it has that prettiness, but that it's not like, it's not like over the top pretty, you know? It's not like, oh, this really sublime sort of just like, lush beautiful thing it's got just these kind of like harm harmonics to it that are interesting but it's not all the way there and so that mixing with these just like dark swirling clouds underneath just sort of creates kind of a, a natural balance i think and makes the the choral vocals feel a little more surreal than they would otherwise kind of reminds me of this um on the initial song so there's that section the noise section that you created, I added vocals, and then we eventually built a song around that. You had told me before that's actually an MK Ultra test that you sped up. Yeah, I, I believe like the part that sounds kind of like cash registers. Yeah, and I think you used it to open yeah. the song on this one, like that first. Yeah, yeah. So that is sped up. Um, I don't know if it's MK Ultra or if it's just LSD trials, uh, but yeah, it's 
an artist that <laughs> is doing these drawings over, I don't know, 10 hours or something during this LSD trip, his drawings just become more and more, um, well, interesting, but also totally dissociative. I just thought it was kind of neat. And uh, I'm better at speeding up audio than playing an instrument. So re-listening to the piece a little bit, uh, you know, sort of just like uh, listening to some pieces, you know, as, as we're discussing it, um, there's like two pieces of media that came to mind. Uh, I recently did a big uh, Twin Peaks rewatch. Like every two or three years, I go back and watch the entire series from season one to the return. And there's definitely parts of the piece that remind me a lot of episode eight during the the nuclear bomb sequence and the creation of of Bob, where you're going inside the nuclear explosion. There's definitely parts of the piece that really feel like okay, you could you could throw parts of of your guys's piece in there and it would fit perfectly. Um, and of course, if you know anything about episode eight, you know that's one of the most breathtaking sequences of TV ever made, in my opinion. Just holy shit! Can can they do? Can he do that? Can you do that on TV? And you can on Showtime at least. Rest in peace to Showtime. Um, and also, uh, I watched Tar uh, last month, and also was kind of reminded of the sort of random dream sequences that are in Tar, sort of the 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 ghostly dream sequences uh that the, they get you know very very surreal I, I feel like dreams in television and movies it's just sort of like a plot device and it's very rare for directors to actually like kind of really put dreams to movies being like oh, okay this is like a very accurate description or accurate sort of portrayal of what dreams are actually like lynch is great at it and i think the the work that todd field does in tar during the the very brief dream sequences are also just like what being in a dream feels like. It's not like this perfect crystal clear vision. It is messy and it doesn't make any sense. And it's sort of dark sometimes where you're just getting like little little vignettes uh, of stuff. Every now and then you do feel like you're kind of in like a like a proper like a quote unquote narrative dream. But for the most part, it really is just sort of like you're just dropped into random vignettes over time until you wake up and you're like, what the fuck just happened? And then you forget everything that happened in like 10 minutes. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the last things that I, that I wanted to say. I'm going to go on record and say the, uh, twin peaks reference is probably the greatest compliment I've ever received. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Of course. <laughs> it, it's definitely uh, an influence on uh, sound and imagery that it, we create. So, Article 7 is a record that I love a lot. It's a pretty foundational record to me as far as like a real gateway into truly experimental music. I think that One of Tricks Point Never and Tim Hecker, which I'm sure is the case for a lot of like indie-leaning music people or whatever, are sort of like kind of the celebrity figures of the sort of like ambient experimental drone world or whatever, and they have a little bit more sort of notice, but they were sort of my gateways into music like this, and particularly R Plus 7 is not my favorite One Tricks Point Never record. That would probably be Replica, the one that came right before this, but this is a record I find myself thinking about a lot as either a reference point for other things that I've become interested in since then or other creative projects I've sort of undertaken, but just, like, it's a record that occupies a lot of space in my mind and is something that I think is really fascinating. Also, in the arc of his 
discography because in many ways it does have a lot of the kind of hallmarks of his career but it is really singular from everything that comes before it and after it like his first just for a little bit of kind of basic context anyone who isn't familiar with one of tricks point never daniel lopatin um he started in the kind of early 2010s late 2000s with uh, a number of records that were eventually compiled in a compilation called riffs which are all kind of just synth jam stuff like he's just got a juno and a prophet and he's doing these super complicated art patterns and these big washes of synthesizers and they're like very beautiful records but they're sort of straightforward in like what you might imagine a synthesizer based experimental ambient record kind of might sound like and then replica is his first big departure record which is this record that is centered around all of these looping samples that are taken from like old commercials and stuff like that and from there his records just increasingly get like conceptual and this record in particular feels like it exists in a kind of empty space that is very much evoked by the album cover which is now a meme at this point the the little obelisk guy in the empty room but like this is a record that i always describe to people as like it sounds like it was recorded inside the big white empty room of the matrix you know when like uh morpheus is like teaching neo how to use guns and it's just a big giant white empty room there's like no dimensions no space it's like airless and there are all these different elements and reference points and sounds that he's that he's pulling from and like these different textures but all of it feels like it's being placed and arranged in like this cold vacuum of space um and i find that that allows for all of these weird like so like i'm talking about earlier about like the different associations we have with sounds and it uh, creates this context for everything that's happening in the music that i just find so moving and unsettling and chilly um i watched 2001 a space odyssey for the first time not too long ago which was like a long overdue sort of you feel like you've absorbed it via cultural osmosis but then you actually watch it and you're like oh i probably should have just sat down to watch this a long time ago but th this is i was thinking a lot about this album when i was thinking about that movie and like how effective that movie is in unsettling you with images that don't seem like they should be that unsettling but because of the way they're presented to you like i think about the scene in that movie where he wakes up in the hotel sort of spaceship room and how it's like kind of normal but just weird enough that it's like so much more unsettling than if it was more like straightforwardly weird and i think that kind of uncanny valley is the zone that r plus seven exists in like there are all of these recognizable elements like there will be bits of bird song or pipe organ or things that you can be like i know what that is but they just feel wrong or they feel like out of place or like that they've been removed from whatever context they should be existing in and i i find that this record is just like a really singular work i can't think of another record that sounds like this even though i'm constantly referencing stuff that's like kind of pulling ideas from it there's nothing quite like it and so i thought it would be a really cool record to discuss and it ended up having a lot of kind of natural overlap with the piece that we just talked about i, I found it interesting that you felt you said it's cold because i found it i mean it might just be that i'm severely depressed but i found it really warm like almost peaceful <laughs> um but that could be the association thing that you're talking about. I do get that though. Like it is, 
it is complex in how to describe it because I also find it to be very beautiful and kind of soothing in a certain way, even though I do think it is alienating also. And I think that's that tension is so much of what the like juice of the record is, kind of in the way we were talking about with the earlier thing, like giving you something pretty, but delivering it to you in such a way that there's still this like tension and unease to it. And I think the record does that a lot with the, there's like all of these staccato samples and things that just fly into the mix really quick and disappear out really quickly. And that kind of like unease. I think of this as being a record that was like really instrumental in reconceptualizing my idea of ambient music from being this thing that was all about kind of like, oh, like a placidity and like kind of a flowiness to it. And this this record and Replica as well are records that have a smoothness to it and a prettiness to it, but also this kind of like jaggedness. It's not something that can ever really fade into the background. It's kind of constantly like prodding you and just sort of forcing you to kind of keep paying attention to it. And I think that that sort of like tension between like, it is just a really pretty record you can put on and just sort of like vibe out to, but it also kind of does feel a little distant and a little bit um, spaced out and sort of surreal in a way that makes you uneasy at the same time. Maddie, do you have a do you have a thought? Um, I mean, nothing that comes to like I said, you know, just sort of like I'm I'm more curious about your guys' thoughts on this record, just because again, this is such a similar like for me when it comes to electronic music, like I you know compared to Jackie, I'm definitely like I'm barely in it, but R plus seven is like my if I had to pick like a favorite electronic album of all time, it's R plus seven. Um, and it's hard to put it's hard to put into words about why exactly that is. It's just like. But I do totally get the, the the perspective of being like there's there, there's definitely times in this record where it is just sort of like heavenly bliss. Like I, I was reading some some comments about this record where like when the when the organs come in on Crumb County, you feel like you're ascending to the fucking heavens. Like that's accurate. But there's definitely times where especially on tracks like Zebra, the way um like one of the great things that the album does, especially on tracks like Zebra and Americans, is that some of these tracks can just fall apart like instantly. Where you're you're getting into some kind of groove, you're getting into like okay, yeah. I'm kind of figuring out what this song is doing and then it just immediately falls apart and turns into something new and you just you, you could just never get a grasp on this record which is what i love about it is that it's so like even though i've heard it so many times it's still so unpredictable when when certain moments mm-hmm. are going to come in and come out there's a like in boring angel like it does travel across the the idea of you know ascending to heavens moving at hyperspeeds and feeling like you have that sense of there's a clear narrative and then once the song fades out this eucharist like organ blasts in at full volume to end the song i remember that catching me off guard every time i put it on whether i was listening to it in the background or listening to it intently to try and like prepare notes perhaps my uh my favorite daniel lopeton quote i think it was from i want to say the gq interview that he did around age of is he said uh every song is an opportunity to freak someone out and that that is his 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 mindset it's like even when he's making something really pretty he wants to lull you into sort of a false sense of like oh i can feel the direction that this thing is going from and then he pulls the rug back out from under you but not just to do it for the sake of doing it like zebra is a great example i think where like it has this this build to it with the arpeggiation and then it just falls apart and then you're like okay now we're moving into some different piece but then 
the the arpeggio just like bursts back in super super hard and like that sort of dynamic is not something you usually think about in like an ambient piece very rarely are things like flying in or making like a, a sharp impact in any kind of way and there's a lot more kind of just like gentle flow and like soft fades and things like that and i think that that does add such a dimension to listening to this record because whether like you're saying whether you're sitting down like giving it your full attention or whether it's happening as you're listening to something else it has the same effect on you and i think that's really cool yeah like zebra has this weird thing for me where i feel especially in the immediate arpeggiating chords where i feel like i've heard it lifted somewhere else and i went through like flying lotus records that i listened to 10 years ago and like bon iver and uh low and even uh, other lives just think like where have i heard somebody use this exact sound or maybe just this chord progression and i felt like each song that i listened to that recalled it i could easily fit zebra right over um, and just have this sense of familiarity it's not quite there kind of annoying that i can't place it because i i like to think that i can place shit <laughs> it's just pissing me off the whole time i i i uh i have the same thing where if like i can't identify something i lose my mind Sa- same i have the same brain disease but zebra is i don't know if it's my favorite one of tricks point never song it's definitely up there this record in particular kind of going back to what we we're saying like chrome country and zebra are like the two big kind of centerpieces of this record the whole for a side of the record kind of builds to zebra and zebra is is one of the few tracks that has like a real kind of conclusive ending like zebra ends and you're like okay that was side one of the record that feels like it's an actual like stopping point and then the song after it kind of has a slow intro to it so it really feels like that's kind of the end of the first half and chrome country is kind of the finale of the second half and i think those two do feel the most kind of sublime they feel the most like that kind of ascending to heaven sort of feeling to them but then they also have that sort of like i'm saying the jaggedness and it is funny i've tried to mix zebra with stuff it does really work like i think more than it being something that has been repurposed because it is kind of weirdly hard to repurpose because of how like specific it is but like i just think it's it's like such a a touchstone for so many artists who are going for these like hi-fi, really sound designy, science fiction-y sort of soundscape stuff that is becoming more and more popular as sort of stuff like serum and and sort of wavetable things are becoming more complex. I think One Tricks Point Never is an artist that like when I listen to people like Proc Fiscal, who I just uh, reviewed his new track for Pitchfork this week, and I'm constantly here these sort of artificial, surreal textures that One Out Tricks Point Never is working with on this record in particular being referenced by these other artists that are trying to have this kind of futuristic sound. And I think that I, I was happy to get to revisit this record because I'm currently working on a, a DJ mix for a friend's mix series that is um, basically for dance music DJs to showcase a mix of things that are not dance music. So I'm using it as an opportunity to talk about a lot of my influences from ambient and more deconstructed sort of soundscapey stuff. And so I've been thinking a lot about One Tricks Point Never and this record. And like, I, I do think that this record, the way it deals with texture and, and and the different kind of characteristics of these sounds and how stark everything is. Like, everything is given so much, like, empty space around it, and you're really given a lot of time to think, like, how does this, like, texture and this timbre make me feel? Because even though there's all these different elements going on, it never feels like they're being, like, layered on top of each other in this cacophony. It's like, you'll get, like, a, a burst of 
birdsong for two seconds, and then you'll get this blast of kind of organ, and then that will go away, and something else will come to replace it. Like, it's constantly, like, shifting your attention to, like, one individual thing at a time, and I think that that relates to this quote that I pulled from the, um, from the ARPA 7 Wikipedia page where he says that, I like to be manipulated by sounds that I'm using, and then struggle to find some sort of commonality with those things. When I play a pipe organ, or have like this Hollywood choir at my disposal, it's going to tap into some kind of cliche matrix of ideas in my mind, and allow me to wrestle with it. And I think wrestling with it is such what this record is. It's like him taking these sort of like he's saying cliche like that this record starts with like an almost stereotypical like ascending to heaven kind of vangelis synth arpeggio but it's also like kind of over the top and i think he's so fascinated with like what draws me to these sort of corny or cliche ideas and how can i take that and just take it to somewhere that feels totally like alien all of a sudden and and that sort of familiarity not familiarity balance is another one of the things that's just sort of like the undercurrent mm-hmm. of this record. I think you mentioned Jackie earlier to how influential this record is in many ways to so many artists. There's definitely certain stuff like I, I I'm re-listening to uh, the track Americans, mm-hmm. the like about two minutes in when it gets in that sort of like bubbly, synthy, glitchy moment. I was reminded a lot of like Sophie in that. It was a very like pro like a, like a proto Sophie track. In, in some ways oh totally just sort of interesting to see all these threads that you know certain artists were kind of take and pick up and and do new things with them yeah i think that speaks to sort of like um the thing i talk about all the time with sophie is this one particular quote the the thing that like sophie would talk about like why is it that electronic music is so fascinated by creating these synthetic recreations of instruments that we already have right like every synth set is like here's this sound and this sound equals this other instrument you have that's a cowbell that already exists and we're trying to create like a kind of crappy version of that thing that you have and she's like these are not kick drums they do not need to kick they can sound like anything they want it is just it is an electrical output like you can think beyond the world of instruments that you have and i think that this record is very influential in the way that it is trying to reference technology and instruments that we can recognize while also taking them to places that don't feel exactly right like i think about like the harpsichords on this record as being something that feels very influential like a lot of records like corliss i don't know if any of you listen to him but he put out a record in 2021 i believe called agore that is a similar sort of like ambient um post club record that has a lot of textural similarities with r plus seven and these sort of disembodied choral vocals and these like really kind of futuristic harpsichord sounds and like i can think of a bunch of others that like definitely are pulling from this as a reference point my experience with this uh with this album which i really enjoyed <clears throat> which is uncommon for me but it reminds me of that moment. I don't know if this happens in real life, but in the movies and TV, when people are at church and the organist plays five or 10 seconds of something before everyone starts singing the uh, the hymns, this whole record kind of feels like that moment where there's a heightening tension that never really resolves. I mean, it, it does, it ebbs and flows, but uh, the whole time it just kind of felt like it's got that open space of this organist in a church waiting for something else to happen. And uh, I don't know, that, that was sort of the image I've got. Um, I, I haven't had the uh, 
the luck of being in a church for a long time. So I don't know if that's a real thing, but in the movies, it always happens. Or like the the beginning of some of the the doors. I I can't think of uh, the whole album has that sort of nice. Well, nice isn't right, but has this great feeling of something else is about to happen, and you don't know what the fuck that's going to be. When I was listening to Chrome Country a couple of times after putting the whole record on, I could definitely hear Kanye and Bon Iver listening to that and wanting to make something that sounds specifically like that song. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely. I think I think Chrome Country and Zebra are the ones, like you're saying, that feel like the most, especially Chrome Country is the one that you can kind of lift out of this record and sort of appreciate as its own sort of like, it is sort of, I think, the most traditionally like accessible song on the record and something that you could imagine someone like Kanye just being like, okay, I can take this out of its weird context and repurpose these sort of touch tones. Yeah, exactly. But it would be so much cooler if it was he, she, because that, that song is my shit right there. I love Hishi. Hishi is crazy. God, uh, back in the day uh, on on the rap forums, uh, there was a like a mixtape club where you would essentially you would be making playlists for other people, but because this was in that weird period of streaming services where like they hadn't been like totally adopted just yet by everybody like they are now, but also. Basically, I would just pirate a bunch of tracks and put together them as like an album, as, as a, an album playlist. And that's obviously completely influenced how I make playlists nowadays, especially when I do like my radio shows and stuff of like, I want everything to have like an album flow. And one of the first tracks I put on, like one of those first like mixtapes was He, She, because it was such a perfect like transitional track of like, here's this short little burst of ideas with the the vocal chopping and the like sort of uh super low pitched uh like gurgling noises it's it's hard to explain but it's just such a it's, it really feels like uh like like a perfect connecting point between replica and in this record of like sort of taking the sort of the the the, the looping vocal styling stuff but incorporating it into this sort of uh the the new vision he has for for this record of you know, being like this, you know, this is first uh, album for Warp, and you know, he got Warp money. He's like, well, I got acquired, I got all this new equipment. Let's use it, but you know, with, with but but also realizing like, hey, I don't want to completely throw people off, but with something completely different, it definitely feels like the, the a, a really solid evolution of of Rebecca, where you're replacing sort of the more sampling based work on that record with more like actual instrumentation and sort of. Uh, really, really upping the sort of the the surrealness of of it all too, because you know now there's no you know whereas with with Rubica, there's sort of there's human voices there's all this stuff there there's none of that you are in this cold empty space and there is no sign of humanity here for the most part and the things that are recognizably human the voices and other things have this unsettling effect because they are so in contrast. Like, I think the way that this record uses bird sounds, I think is incredible because normally when, like, if you think about, like, the hackiest possible way you could use, like, bird or animal sounds in, like, an ambient record, it's just, like, to create the sense of, like, oh, peace, nature, etc. When you hear the birds in this record, it's, like, what are the birds doing here? Like, it's unsettling that the birds are there because it's like they're in this cold, empty vacuum of space. Like, how did they get here? What are they doing here? Like, like going back to the whole, like, the 2001 thing, like, I think a thing I read about that scene where he wakes up in the room is it's like, 
is does the room look like a hotel room because the alien beings are trying to make humans comfortable by giving them a, a, a an environment that they're gonna sort of recognize but then the kind of offness of it like he describes this record as like a calm record that he was trying that was like in supposed to capture the feeling of like domestic bliss and stuff like that but there is that kind of uneasiness to it and and i think that's very intentional like this is a guy that his music is not really steeped in irony per se like i think that's kind of a, a misreading i think sometimes but like he is fascinated with like pulling from stuff like new age music and sort of reconsidering the cultural context and association with those things and trying to use those sort of palettes and things like he describes this the sound palette of this album as feeling very innocent and how he's using a lot of these kind of like presets from the 80s and 90s synthesizers as a way to sort of call back to this like past idea of futurism like i think a lot when i listen to one on tricks point never music about like 1950s like world fair like what is the future gonna look like and sort of taking those sort of past images of the future and juxtaposing those with like the kind of empty hollowness of our current reality not to get too galaxy brain about it these records constantly get me spitting down those sorts of things with like not only the way that he is so good at talking about his own creative process just with the way he's juxtaposing sounds gets you to think about these things in different ways Maddie, I was going to say, I was going to bring up, as we're talking about, like, other reference points for this. Um, yes. You listened to Silver Apples for the first time for a music rhetoric exercise, and that's something I think, like, hmm. going back to what you are saying, like, kind of proto-visions of electronic music, I, this, to me, feels really in conversation with that stuff and is trying to think about, like, how did we conceptualize the future in the 1960s and the 1970s and, like, kind of coming back to that and... Uh, I, I think that that was something that yeah, Maddie, did you did you pick up on that this time around after having listened to uh, that? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I I I wouldn't think to connect Silver Apples to this record, but now that you mention it, it's like okay, I can kind of see some some of the points here of primitive synth work, but sort of t you know taking that but just evolving it to its you know natural conclusion of sorts. If you know if history was a little different. Um, again, I just I love this record so much. I just I love this album so much. It's it's just hard to put into words. And I and I think the work of of Daniel Lipton is just in general like, I mean, some people have underrated certain records he's had in his run from like Replica to 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 now. But I mean, I think the run from Replica to to all the way up to um, Magic One Tricks by Never is just it's an insane run so far. And it feels like it's not gonna gonna it's not gonna be a run that's gonna end anytime soon. Yeah, I'm so excited for uh, his new record. He has described it as the spiritual successor to Garden of Delete, which is the one that comes after this record. Um, and the only uh, thing I'm aware of about the new record is he posted an Instagram video several months ago where... Um, there were like double black metal kick drums on 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 the song, and I was like, "Tell me nothing more about the record. I would like to just hear it now. I'm, I'm like ready." But um, no, I, I I am a stan of his at this point. I think it's probably pretty obvious, um, and I think that as his career has evolved, I think it's made me even more fascinated with these early records because in many ways he is going further and further from these records as he's venturing more into the worlds of pop music and 
thinking about pop music in a way that's similar to the way he thinks about electronic music is kind of this constant like retro futurism and magic one Pitch point never in many ways is a record that feels sort of retrospective of his entire career thus far there's a lot of stuff on magic opn that sounds like r plus seven and some of it sounds like replica and some of it sounds like but it also doesn't feel like a kind of checklisty thing but i i think that as he's sort of evolved this record in particular continues to stand out and continues to be something that like he has a, an influence very widely on music in general like replica and uh the predecessor to replica which is chuck person's echo jams which is the the first echo jam mixtape he creates which is essentially like the invention of vaporwave like echo jams and floral shop are like the two quintessential vaporwave records and i think one of the big influences of his career is this idea that Echo Jams really helped funnel the people is this idea that like listening to something can and critically thinking about it can not only be something that turns into like music journalism, but that it can be a generative act in itself. And that a lot of what he was doing with that record is taking things like pop music and it's like, what if I what if I hear something different in this and stretch it and warp it and, and, and time dilate it and all of a sudden I'm pulling out this other undertext that was existing in this thing that was a pop cultural object. And I think that that's one really fascinating current of his career, but that R plus seven is so not that. R plus seven is such a, a jump in his career because it feels like his least referential and like his most created work like it feels like replica is this record that is so reactive and responsive to what he was feeling in culture and this feels like he's creating something in this like hermetically sealed box and sort of constructing it all in his mind palace in a, in a different sort of way and i think these two records continue to be my favorite of his and they sort of represent the two poles of what i find interesting about his work Matt, yeah. did you have a thought? I got nothing. I I, I got I got nothing. You just, every now and then you hold it up. You're like, eh. <laughs> I I got nothing. Jack, Jack, again, that's why I brought Jackie here because Jackie knows how to talk about this stuff, and I don't. <laughs> I was gonna say though, uh, going back to your he she point though, Maddie. Um, I don't know if you've listened. Did you listen to the new Ula, Ula record from last year? I listened to it like I've it was like half of it or something, but I really liked it. I want to go back to it. That is a record that. I think more than anything I've heard in the last couple of years feels directly in conversation with R plus seven. And in particular is a record that sounds, if you like he, she, it's basically a whole record of that. Like Ula is an ambient artist, more kind of more traditionally ambient than one Oh tricks point. Never. I would say, although as her career has evolved, like the record that put me onto her is this record called tumbling toward a wall, which is probably my favorite of her still. And is just like this unbelievably meditative ambient record that is more traditional in a lot of ways, but creates this sort of constant slight sense of movement to it, but it's still very, very peaceful, very tranquil foam. The new record is very kind of calm and peaceful and warm but it has that R plus seven glitchiness and stuttering quality and like the way that like samples and like vocals are chopped into being completely unrecognizable and they're kind of constantly like ebbing and flowing from the track. And I think that that record is very much in conversation with this one, but that record is 
not just like uh, calm, but it, it is like, emo- I've described it as like if R plus seven could give you a hug, like R plus seven is a very sublime album, but it's not very sentimental. The Ula record has like softly played guitar strings and has like kind of just more and piano that's more recognizable as piano. And this is much starker and much harsher, but they're, they're working in a very similar zone because that Ula record never lets you just settle into it being background music. Like it's constantly burbling and, and, and bubbling up to the surface and there's constantly something disturbing the placidity or like creating a, a, a very gentle tension with the placidity that's like underneath it. And I think that's something that this record does really well and has been obviously an influence cool. on yeah. other records since. Well, like, I guess just to put you both on the spot a bit more generally, this is such a lame question, but I am really interested in what your answer is. Like what in a song or in a piece like really draws you in, like where you click from, Oh, this is nice or this is bullshit. Um, What really Mm -hmm. draws you into thinking something is great moving or exciting it's it's hard to put into words because again there's just so many songs that mm-hmm. evoke so many different things um I, I look back to i feel like a record that i now that i'm like connecting to, to opn a little bit um uh the my album of the year last year was pendant's harp and i think the thing musically it's it's almost impossible to put into words how you get there but being able to kind of take me back to a, a certain place especially like something more like childhood or sort of like teenage years being able to kind of take me back to that place emotionally that's always going to hook me like that's always going to going to grab me because it's 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 pretty hard to get to, for for a song mm-hmm. to get there for me but when it does that it's just you know it's hard to let it go it's always a very boring answer and people are like well what do you listen to and i say well a little bit of everything because that's like kind of a lot of people's answer i feel like these days or they say like everything but blah 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 but like my approach to music in general is I try not to be super prescriptive. So like I tend to try to be like, I want to meet things where they are and I want to try to see what something brings out of me and then just sort of approach it with like an open curiosity. But as far as things that I gravitate to and something that pulls me into a song, going back to this record and also I was talking earlier about this DJ mix I'm working on, the kind of big overarching concept that I've been thinking about as I've been going through this mix is all these different reference points that are not my dance music reference points. So like shoegaze and instrumental hip hop and ambient music and the two overarching things are texture and mood are the two things that I think I tend to prioritize, I, I am a lyrics person and I really like lyrics, but I can go completely without them and something can be equally as moving, if not more moving with the right combination of like an emotional mood that is established by vocals or by melodies or whatever in con- in contrast or in combination with specific textural elements like i have this hypothesis that me getting really into clams casino is like why i like shoegaze now because clams casino was like a really huge important artist for me in that he would take these samples from stuff like imogen heap and he would stretch it so so much that you would start to hear like the digital breakage like he would he would take something and pull it so far that you would start to hear these like digital artifacts that would be created and that that was that the textural element that was created by that 
just had this like effect that like the way my friend Alexis who hosts a podcast Hot Singles those ones describe it mm-hmm. as like the sounds that make your brain feel like it's being scratched on the inside you know like those things that are just like scratching some sort of itch or, or like have has some sort of satisfying tactility to it and I think that that is a lot of what I look for in music that is not like a traditional like oh this is a really well written song with a chorus and a verse and whatever like I think that a lot of artists like 10 Tricks Point Never were really instrumental in me being able to look at music beyond just sort of the like, verse kind of verse for verse sort of structure and think about like how can just texture and mood exist in a piece and how can that tell a story that can be as enveloping as someone who's like telling a more traditional storytelling approach to music. As you were saying that I was thinking about your um like on Twitter when you have a negative criticism it does come across as really like thoughtful like you've approached something openly and I'm most immediately thinking about um your criticism of the Smiles record. So I actually enjoyed it quite a bit, and I think I enjoyed it more after seeing them live. But you definitely hit the nail on the head with Free and the Knowledge. Like, I used to be a lot more into lyrics when I was younger, thinking that, like, you know, an interesting turn of phrase is necessary for a song to be good. I'm not really there anymore, but something so corny and, and awkward as the lyrics to Free and the Knowledge really detracts from what would otherwise be like a lush or a pretty song. It was it was an important reminder to me. I just need to constantly remind myself that Tom York is a is a, a British man in his fifties. <laughs> <laughs> that that he is he is at the end of the day like a, a, a Gen X dad who follows the at God account on on Twitter. Um like he, he's he's a little corny and I don't need him to not be corny, you know, but like I appreciate you saying that because sometimes I, t- I am totally dismissive of stuff and don't give stuff a fair chance. But I try to be at least honest when I'm being a dismissive hater. But I, I from the Radiohead especially like that comes entirely from a place of like I don't even dislike that record. It's just an emotional letdown because Radiohead are my favorite band. And also because I was so, so high on the last Tom solo record and pretty high on the Ed O'Brien solo record. So it was like I I had pretty high expectations for it. And I will say that I like the live record more than the regular record. And also I imagine that if I saw the smile, I would probably enjoy it more after that. However, the smile tickets were expensive and I didn't like the record that much. So it was like, uh, do I want to pay a hundred plus bucks to get a record? Not really. I, uh, I can appreciate that. One of the things that I thought from the record, that was a problem. Maybe that, they need a new producer. I think for the next Radiohead record, I would like them to keep the whole group the same, but it's like, if you're going to go off and try to do your own thing, having Stanley do the artwork, which by the way, I think it's Stanley Donwood's maybe worst artwork ever. That, that or King of the Limbs, I think are probably his two worst. I don't think it's very well designed, but like Stanley's back and Nigel's back. And it's like, I think, I think you're right that like the Nigel thing, it's like, it's such automatic for them at this point. And I think they're just scared because famously they tried to make a record without Nigel and that was in Rainbows. And they worked on it for a year, and a year in, in Rainbows, they called him up and they're like, Nigel, it's a mess. We don't know what we're doing. Come back. We need you. And and he ended up producing that record. And so I think because of that, they're going to be scared to ever like 
detached that relationship because I think he's kind of their security blanket at this point. But you're right that it's kind of like we've heard that sound so much before that it's hard for it to be exhilarating in the same way. But Moonshade Pool was great and Animal was great. So like I'm not writing them off by any means. I would like to enjoy whatever the next Smile record or Radiohead record is. Just an editor's note, The Smile did release the song Bending Hectic since recording with producer Sam Petz-Davies and proved us right. The one thing that I wanted to do that's a bit of a sequel to our uh, our episode with Maddie, just throw a bunch of artists at the both of you and you can say whatever you want about them, positive, negative. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. You could, you could focus on record, you could focus on the artists themselves, or you can pass. And uh, then I'll throw it to Gene. <laughs> All right. First one out of the bat, uh, Afghan wigs. Oh, I am a big Afghan wigs fan. Although, um, <laughs> <laughs> Maddie is immediately. Um, okay. I, I just have to tell this story because it's really funny. I uh, am a huge Afghan wigs fan. And this actually goes back to my, our coworker, Luke. Um, they put out a new record this year. And I have been trying to get my coworker Luke into former, yeah. the, my former coworker into the Afghan wigs um, because Luke is like a big '90s alt rock guy. It's like it's very rare that I have a real strong feelings about a band that Luke does not have strong feelings about. And so I was just like, oh, this is a good opportunity for me to like get him into something that I think he would really like because it has a lot of stuff that I think is up his alley. And part of how I was trying to get everyone in the office into Afghan wigs was one day I was playing a bunch of covers from, he had a covers record, but then I was just pulling up on YouTube, like Greg Dooley, Afghan wig covers and stuff like that and playing stuff that people were requesting. And I, uh, I ended up playing a cover of a Kanye West song, all of the lights in which he says the part with the N word and that I didn't know he did that. Um, and it was very funny because I was in the process of trying to sell my coworkers on this guy and it's like, yeah, he does a little cultural appropriation, but like, it's fine. It turns out it's maybe not fine, but that that was that was just a really funny uh, thing that happened. But it it has not completely soured me on Greg Dooley is busting it down cultural appropriation style. But we he those those record those records are really really great. Still, I'm a huge fan of the entire '90s run of Gentlemen, Black Love, Debonair. 1965 all those records are great and i really i got into afghan wigs because of the comeback material because i thought in spades was a fantastic record got me into the old afghan wig stuff got me into all the twilight singers stuff so they're they're a big band of mine even though i had an embarrassing moment with them recently that has sort of left a sour taste in my mouth regarding their most recent record but the new one is good i thought the new one picked up right where uh their last record left off and also their new record has uh, domino and jimmy which is like a sequel to their most famous song which features um uh the the vocalist from scrawl that was kind of a cool kind of full circle moment like basically doing a sequel to your most famous duet um yeah i i, I love afghan wigs but yeah that was an awkward yeah moment. no opinions other than that story for me personally i just love the idea of like introducing like hey check out this guy i love he has a song called and here's him playing the song with the n-word <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no. And I, 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 the, the worst part was that I was just, I was free fly, you know? Like, I had listened to a lot of Afghan Wigs covers, and I saw that one come up in YouTube, and I was like, oh, great, he covered this song? Like, I love that song. Like, I think you gave us the choice, too. Like, no, th- you, that was exactly you, you what it was. like, two songs. I, I threw out... And we're like, I, hey, let's hear the Kanye one. I threw out a couple different covers that he had done, um, and they they selected that one and and yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big Dooley head as well. I got into him through a weird combination of Mark Lanigan and Dennis Leary because he was on the Daily Show once and he he just instead of talking about what he wanted to talk about, he was just like, "Here's the best album I ever listened to," and I, and I got I, it was the Twilight Singers "Powder Burns" and it got me into uh, oh fuck yeah. yeah yeah it's just a perfectly sequenced rock album. Uh, Greg Dooley has several bangers. I lo- I love uh, "Powder Burns," especially "Bonnie Brain." Like, What else you got for us? What else? All right, let me think. Let me think. Um, well, one that I think still fits in the box of like the Flylo sort of scene, Lapalux Ruinism. Oh fuck yeah! I love Lapalux. I am really big into uh, Lustmore. Is probably the Lapalux record that I actually um, uh, was just thinking about this record because Maddie, uh, we are we are going to be doing on the Indie Heads podcast, I think one or two episodes on uh, chill wave music um, and Don't Mean a Thing is kind of a foundational track of that era of kind of brain feeder, post-Flying Lotus, instrumental hip-hop, chill wavy vibes music to put it broadly. Um, but I also really like Ruinism. Ruinism is a really cool record, definitely a lot darker and kind of more um, confrontational than the other Lapalux stuff, either the one before it or after it. I remember really liking the song with, uh, I really like the song with Louisa, uh, Rotted Arp. I think that's the one I remember liking from that record. I was going to say, I, I don't remember the rest of the record super well, but that was the one I think that stuck out to me at the time. Yeah, like the singles were all like the relatively R&B leaning ones, like forever. But like opening it sounds... As if it's referencing um, R plus seven and or other. Oh yeah, that's actually a good call. Yeah, like that's that's why I was like, oh, maybe this is the record I'm thinking of with Zebra. It, it has that you know classical tones that are sampled and cut through, and a lot of granular synthesis. Now that I know what that is, I can actually pick it up on on albums I listen to religiously. Definitely, he was never he was never that big of a guy. Like his biggest um, in 2013, 2015, like. The one song from uh, uh, Lustmore that I love, Don't Mean a Thing, has like 8 million hits on Spotify. So he's like not small. He was on Brain Feeder, but he was never one of the guys on mm-hmm. Brain Feeder that like really popped. I, I don't know if either of you have any strong opinions one way or another, but if someone can explain the 1975 to me. I, I might be the best equipped to do this, even though I'm not a big 1975 fan. I, I've always said about oh. 1975 is that uh, go ahead that, that, that when they are in their pop music mode, they are great bands. They've got they've got a bunch of bangers where they go fully in on, on the pop music side. I think especially where it peaks is on the 2018 record, a brief inquiry into online relationships, where the stuff where they're really embracing their pop side or you know adding a little bit of experimental edges to to some of the pop music. It's really great. Like I think like two time two time two time is a great track. Uh, there's a bunch of really awesome songs on that record, but obviously in the last year or so, uh, especially as their fan base kind of exploded, even though their fan base was already really big pre-pandemic it really exploded uh once they kind of made their comeback into touring 
as of course they did a big U.S. tour and a big U.K. tour, uh, which I know about because I literally saw videos from that tour every fucking day on my TikTok feed. But their last record was not very good, in my opinion, because I think that Jack Antonoff uh, is, a, is he's a bad producer. He's a bad producer and he's a bad songwriter. And I think he's a he, bad person as far as I'm concerned. I, I sucks so much. He does suck a lot. I'm not sure if I would go that far, even though I do hate his music uh, quite a bit. And the, uh, that, but he's that just, Beatles cover was a war crime. We should acknowledge. <laughs> oh, the Beatles cover that that's what, like what the fuck happened? Like, I just did no one like, what is like, why are we in a van recording this for one? Like, why is the van moving? But then like, why does it sound like this is the Beatles, not Bob Dylan? Like what, what are we doing here? Uh, but back to night 75 that last record i thought was not very good because i feel like with with that band what makes them uh interesting is that they like to explore a lot of different ideas and it's both the most frustrating aspect of the band but it's also probably where their best ideas come from is that fact they're like hey we want to sound like this we want to sound like this you know the fact that they're kind of willing to be like hey we're just gonna rip some people off whatever and some of their best songs are them just ripping off other artists like uh love me is just like total fucking yacht rock huey lewis that kind of scene worship and i think it's fucking great but the new one just all the all the all the edges have been sand off it's them trying to make like a more like respectable rock record like hey like hey there's you know this, this is a clean record in terms of the sound uh it's only like 45 minutes long compared to their usual over hour album length it's them making this 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 pivot to like a more respectful critical claim but like i just don't think it works at all for them because what makes them good is how fucking ridiculous they can be and this new one just sands off all that it makes them a very uninteresting band musically not not bad not good which for the 1975 the fact that they're just kind of down middle of the road like that's the most insulting thing i could say about that band is them going fully middle of the road i um <laughs> jackie has a maddie healy story oh yeah i maddie healy uh got in my mentions set a few months ago um i i both think it was fair and unfair it was fair in that i was being very rude to maddie healy uh it was unfair in that he name searched himself i did not tag him he just showed up <laughs> in my mentions now he did so okay for context for anyone who is not uh, tuned in, uh, basically I was listening to an episode of Bandsplain about um, the band Third Eye Blind, um, and I was thinking a lot about how Maddie Healy is essentially the Stephen Jenkins of our generation, for better and worse, mostly worse in my opinion, but I was sort of I was mostly being value neutral about it but I, I the joke that I made was that Stephen Jenkins pretended to do meth to write a song about it and Maddie Healy one-upped him by actually getting addicted to heroin because he thought it would make his songs more interesting which is a true thing that he said that's not me putting words in his mouth that's like a thing that he did I shouldn't have joked about it on twitter.com I immediately regretted doing that but then he said that uh he got in my mentions and says that he said uh, I got addicted to heroin to get away from music journalists with over a hundred thousand tweets um and that was he owned me so I I do have to give him <laughs> credit there but i've just always found like i get the maddie healy thing and i think that a lot of people try to be dismissive of they're like oh i don't even this guy is smarter than he thinks he is which of course he isn't as smart as he thinks he is but that's not like mm-hmm. why people people don't like him because i think he's smart they like him because he is an incredibly compelling celebrity figure and he's very good at doing that but i've never found that the music is interesting enough to be worthy of of dealing with all the hullabaloo nonsense and also 
because of my like post Kanye fan trauma disorder, I just have less interest in like a guy being ridiculous in that sort of way. You know, it's like, oh, what is he gonna say? Like that whole like fascination with Maddie as sort of like this figure to love to hate and all of that. Like I'm just kind of tired of that model of like celebritydom at this point. And so it's like, yeah, he's getting up on stage and yelling weird things in auto tune and like touching himself while he eats raw meat or whatever. And it's like, I don't care. Like, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not scandalized. I just would like to opt out of the Maddie Healy narrative at this point. But going back to your, <laughs> <laughs> that I'm always fair to stuff. I'll admit that I'm not very fair to 1975, especially now that Maddie Healy and I have beef. But um, there are some of their pop hits, like It's Not Worth Living If It's Not With You and Love It If We Made It that I think are like pretty undeniable pop songs. But I also don't find their experiments as interesting as like Maddie does. And I, and I don't think that their pop stuff is strong enough that they can just be that, like a straight ahead pop band. And so I'm pretty 1975 agnostic to negative i'm probably in the same boat as as you jackie for like i i only started really hearing about them when the album came out and i might be mistaken i think anti-art really liked it um and if i if they didn't i apologize but like just after they started their tour you would just have these context removed snippets of maddie appearing as this like mysterious sexy and kind of like you know strange figure you know like a front man like an actual front man in in the way that front men used to be um and then actually going okay well let's listen to the new record and then within a couple of seconds going no mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to listen to that anymore it was bizarre you know somebody somebody described that better on twitter but i think the the nicest thing that i've that i've seen about his music or that i could say about his music that i've seen through twitter snippets is this one song i heard kind of sounded like roxy music <laughs> i mean that that really is the like i said that their best music is when they're like fully ripping off artists like roxy music yeah. But the thing is that... And I think that was one of the most uh, fascinating things about the, the 1975, the interview that uh, Ryan Domble did for Pitchfork with him, which the way I've, I put my reaction to this interview was I was like, God, this guy sounds insufferable, but also someone could describe me the exact same way that they're describing him. So maybe we're just the same kind of annoying and that's why we're like at war with each other. Um, but uh, I, I totally agree that like they are so referential and that was one of the most interesting things about the piece was this detail that originally that record was going to be produced by... Um, um, bon Iver guy worked with Lowe, BJ Burden. That was going to be a BJ Burden record, and it ended up being a Jack Antonoff record. So first of all, just the idea that you could go into a, an album thinking this is going to be a BJ Burden album, and then, and then no, actually, it'll be Jack Antonoff. Like, that's concerning enough on its own, but BJ Burden basically said in the interview that the reason why he left the project, when he got in the studio with them, apparently the way that they work is that they literally will pull up Spotify and they'll be like... Listen to this. This is this is something. Let's do something that kind of sounds like this, but then also let's play this song. It sounds kind of like this. Like they're literally pulling reference tracks. And B.J. Burden was like, "I don't like to work this way. I'm trying to create like your own world, and I don't want to be like clouded by all of these." references that you're asking me to pull in and i think learning that that's how they make songs was very informative to me about what how i feel about their music i think yeah i, I saw that too on wikipedia and it felt sad it felt like i could have heard a, a record that i at least found something interesting in. yeah exactly like it, it wouldn't have been good but it would it would have been bad in a way that was really compelling and i think maddie's dead on that like 
the record has its it really does feel like maddie was making up for the lack of confrontational weirdness on the record with the tours like he's like oh i'll just do that shit on stage and we'll make a record that's a little more down the middle and it's on like, stage and on the no, adam freeland show <laughs> oh yeah that's right <laughs> I, I gotta say, like, I'm uh. not a Come Town fan. I'm not a fan, of, you know. Like I said, I'm obviously, you know, a fan of Chapo. So, I'm a fan of people in that in that like sort of like sphere, but you know, never gotten to Come Town or any of that 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 universe. But again, seeing like 1975 fans freak out about Maddie Healy on that show, saying again awful things, mind you, but still, it's just like. Like, why are you surprised? Like, he's always been like this. Like, he's always been this fucking little shit heel. And that's kind of what I appreciate about yeah, Maddie no, Healy is that it is it, good it, to have a yeah. heel in, like, popular rock music of, like, here's this guy that, that like, he's going to s- soak up all the hate, totally. you know, that, that he wants, yeah. he loves the hate. He, he wants to be, he wants to play the crowd and be, and be the bad guy of sorts, which I, as a wrestling fan, I appreciate having a figure like that being like, Hey, I will absorb all the hate that you guys have for this genre of music. To put a bow on this. Um, I do want to say the most, I think the most that maybe ever liked Maddie Healy, um, the clip of him talking about Oasis, <laughs> Uh, earlier this year is is straight up the best. It's it's if anyone hasn't seen it, just go look up on YouTube. Maddie Healy Oasis uh, call out or whatever, as saying stop messing around and just go fucking tour with your brother like that. He's right. He, if we get an Oasis tour, we have to give Maddie Healy credit. We just do. It's it, he he made the the case more compelling than everyone. He's like grow the fuck up. <laughs> like no one is going to see a Noel Gallagher and the Flying Birds show and is like more stoked about that than going to see Oasis. Just like get over yeah. it. Like seriously, you guys are fucking brothers, and also you're gonna make a ton of fucking money at this. Like at this point, you're gonna make a ton of fucking that, money. The Gallagher brothers, they love making money, and eventually, the 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 unstoppable force and the immovable object, there will be a resolution. I, I feel like the 30th anniversary is just the obvious answer of how they yeah do it and make them. They'll, they'll probably wait. It, it'll allow bit. them to make the most. But that's this year. The 30th anniversary of uh, what's story Morning Glory is this year, and so I think that is it. Our, I, I oh, think it's, it's next, next year. year, but like they're they're most likely gonna announce it this year if they do. But um, if they do actually reunite, which again, who fucking knows with the with the Gallagher brothers? It but feels again, more plausible now. They love it money. Feels more plausible now than it ever has, and I also think it's a great way for them to temporarily reunite, make a shitload of money, so that then they don't have to ever reunite ever again. You know what I mean? Like they'll plug their they exactly. can plug their nose, do this one tour, and then be so rich for the rest of their life that they don't have to care. Yeah, get your kids through college and then call it a fucking day. Like, come on, guys. Like, get, 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 again, just give everyone, like, one last great show. Like, get over it. Get over it. Jesus Christ. Exactly. Like I said. But again, also, but but also the Gallagher brothers hating each other is still one of the one of the ba- best feuds in music history. They're, they're, they, they have such unique ways of making fun of each other that are so fucking funny. British people are just that, the best that, at that. Like, I was listening to the Cure Bandsplain episode this week, and that guy that uh, called Robert Smith a fat cunt, but they're, like, still... <laughs> like, British people hold grudges so so deep in their soul. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, Robert Smith saying... Um, God. <laughs> He hates Morrissey so much that he eats meat. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 really, mean, hey. they really know how to be like that. That is the thing I, I will give to Maddie Healy. Like uh, Maddie is saying about Maddie Healy, 
it's the quality of shittiness, which is something that Ian Cohen talks about a lot, is that we have a, a, a lack of shittiness in music today, like unproblematic shittiness, you know, just like, oh, this guy isn't a sex pest. He's just like an asshole. Um, and, and that in our era of like pop stars trying to be like relatable, likable figures, that there is something kind of refreshing about someone doing the kind of old school rock star. I'm the shit posturing thing exactly all right gene have you had a moment to think about anyone in the history of music the only album that i can listen to start to finish would be uh uh 12 golden country greats by ween the 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 13 track uh, (laughs) album by ween so i have not listened to this whole record uh i do uh very casually like ween most of my ween um, familiarity is the mollusk, pretty much entirely the mollusk, and most of that is just like I too saw Ocean Man on SpongeBob as a child and was being pilled along with the whole. Oh, I also I I also like Quebec. I've listened to that one. I don't think I'm ever going to be a a ween guy, as it were. You know, like I feel like that is a call. Although I never know. Like I feel like uh, Gavin, our friend, very recently, um, all of a sudden. It's like you wake up one day and all of a sudden you just really like ween and it's like out of your control and, and nothing you can do about it. Um, but I, I I know that this record has a very infamous reputation, even among ween fans. Um, and I, I find it fascinating. I do not, I think I have listened to Japanese Cowboy one time and I was like, well, this is hilarious that this exists, but I'm not necessarily gonna like dive into it. <laughs> I have no ween. I have no opinions on the band Ween. I I have never. Uh, dug- do you like the song Ocean Man? I do Daddy? like Ocean Man. That's a fun it's one. A fun song. But otherwise, no no opinions really. Uh, Gene, do you have a second one, or you calling it there? You were you got me thinking. You were going to say a different album by a musician that's widely loved by everyone except for you. So- oh no, I've already mentioned that one. Well, fuck it. Why not? And we're going to do one mention of it every episode. All right. Never Let Me Down by David Bowie. Is that the the, the comeback record from the yeah, early nineties? Let me just see here. It would certainly be early nineties. It was the one. It was it was yeah. the one he did after after Tim Machine wrapped up, right? It's eighty seven. It's 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 the one that comes after Let's Dance. Oh, that's like the oh, that's like the the, the of the 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 eighties trilogy of sorts. Yeah, it's eighty seven. Again, the the the. the where where Bowie went full well went pop. Okay, I was thinking. Okay, I was mistaking that with uh with a uh, like white noise like black tie white noise. I think that's the that's the comeback record in the nineties. Uh, but well, it, it, interesting because I know like I know the the story of that record especially I think because there was the the new mixes that came out like a year or two ago that really changes the record of like okay like this is a much better record now than people gave it credit for at the time uh, because of of the new the new mixes or, or something like that if i remember correctly okay. this is not one that i uh have a lot of familiar with apparently this is the one that uh peter frampton played guitar on a lot but yeah no i i don't really um i i i have a lot of love for david bowie i've never quite done the like i've listened to lots of david bowie albums but i've never like had my like david bowie phase per se as it were beyond just like getting really into um, I, I really like Hunky Dory and Low, obviously, and like many of the the big hits. But I don't. I have never quite had a like. I'm listening to the whole Bowie discography, sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got really into Bowie um, ba- basically right before Black Star came out. Uh, there was there was a few months 
uh, when the the title track dropped in 2015 i just like holy shit this is incredible and i just did it you know a huge dive through on a bunch of his records unsurprisingly just has a ton of classic records i mean the run from hunky dory until like scary monsters is just it's an it's an insane run for an artist uh just like so so many classics so many interesting oddities like throughout his career like i know you, you have you listened to earthling jackie the one where he goes like like drum and bass and like nine inch nails industrial no, i have not what the fuck i should listen to that yeah. i'm sure i would I really like that yeah it's a very like interesting experiment where again he was always again even if his his songwriting had kind of fallen in in uh, at certain points you know he was always exploring like what was kind of new and recent oh okay oh, i I, uh, I recognize this cover i i i was uh not familiar with the name off top but i know that cover for sure yeah little wonder is a, is a is like a fucking like drum and bass it's 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 bowie doing drum and bass it kind of fucking love that song it kind of rocks uh and then i'm a friend of americans is, is a great track where i think yeah. i think trent Reznor's on that one yeah um where yeah it's just uh, bowie doing i'm afraid americans was remixed for a single uh yeah, by for, trent was it for lost highway yeah i think so yeah probably uh but yeah bowie's got again ton, ton of really awesome records and again i think like black star being his last record is just like that's i mean i don't i don't really know if you're gonna find any other artist out there or like their, their final record is like amongst their like top five or just one of the, one of their best like just such a perfect ending for for a career essentially what was walker's last record maddie scott walker uh there was bish bosh and then there was the uh the sun o collab record in 2014 that was his last record oh okay uh which which was fine i, I think that sun record is pretty good but like bish bosh, like but it doesn't feel like like both sal's and bish bosh don't feel like final records right like they do feel like okay like there's just it's just sort of continuing down down this sort of more avant-garde path and, that, and that's one of the one of the sadder things is being like damn like i really wish there was like a a, a final proper scott walker record but considering the way you know the way he works that's just not it wasn't I, I i don't imagine the fact that we haven't heard anything about like oh here's like unreleased music like i assume he hadn't gotten started on his next record until he passed away like i think he had written some lyrics because they're in like a lyrics book uh that that he put out in like 2018 i think uh but the songs themselves never again there hasn't been anything so i don't imagine there's like much in the vault from scott walker at this point but bish bosh and south are both really good records but definitely like not like the like a a great final record where it feels like okay there's like a finality here definitely felt like continuations of stuff he had been working on for the past 20 odd years yeah and it was funny that black star came out when it did because that was also when a tribe called quest we got it from here thank you for your service came out and that is also a record that is like oh wow you never you you would have never thought that they'd have like a proper send-off that feels like actually like closure and the tribe called quest album was a similar sort of thing in ways that they didn't even intend because they were making it before fife had even died but yeah that record has a similar sort of feeling to me of very self-conscious about like closing the door on like a legendary career as opposed to bish bosh which does feel like he was intending to keep experimenting and doing more things mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. uh gene do you have another one well i didn't know i was allowed to uh go with hip-hop but you are absolutely allowed my brother and then goes okay and i mean keep in mind i'm i'm old so what's you know recent to me uh is going to be like 20 years old but kind of love stillmatic that's a good record stillmatic's underrated i i think in general nas tends to get a a a tough rap 
for his non-Illmatic records because of how just large that looms over everything else. And so people are just sort of like, oh yeah, he's got the one really classic record and then he's got, in, it was written and then the rest is sort of diminishing returns. But I think Stillmatic is definitely the Nas record. Pr probably the last Nas record that I would be able to say that I like enjoy. Obviously Ether is like kind of the big headliner there, but it's got one mic. I, I think it that's the last... Nas album that feels like it has songs that have like their own cultural legacy outside of it just being like the new Nas record from there on out like Life is Good is the only other one that feels like it had a real kind of impact at the time but that record is fine it's too long and then the uh the stuff he's done with Kanye like the new stuff is bad it's really bad Agreed. in my opinion but Stillmatic's pretty good it's not, not that bad Pass that shit, man. Now tell me what y'all smoking? What kind of heat y'all holding? Well, is your creep move potent? You know, I'll, I'll pour two and you both can decide who you want to either talk about or shit on a little bit more. Okay. St. <laughs> Vincent or Gorillas slash Damon Albarn writ large? That is a tough... I feel like St. Vincent. I, 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 I feel like for I me... Mean, St. Vincent, I feel like we've just, we've litigated that plenty. I feel like St. But, Vincent, but, but, but it is it is worth doing. I mean, gorillas, it's like, what do I you even say so about gorillas still. at this point? Yeah, but St. Vincent, I mean, St. Vincent was like one of the first like indie artists that I got into, like when I started posting on Indie Heads, like that self-titled record came out and that was one of the first things I got into because of the subreddit and kind of led me down the path that I'm on on today. So to see her career arc over the last like five or six years is just really disappointing because again, self-titled is so good. And then Mass Seduction, I think, is maybe one of the most overrated albums of the decade. Um, not even that I was like rated that highly when it came out, but it's a record where I see people kind of speak positively about it. And I'm like, what are you like? What are you people fucking talking about? Like what? Like what positive things do you have to say about this record? Of course, it's another fucking Jack Antonoff produced dud. Uh, you know, she made three great records with john congleton actor strange mercy self-titled three great records won the fucking grammy with john congleton and instead she's like oh i'm gonna work with gigantinoff because for for reasons unknown where we we didn't really get into it too much in the discussion on antonoff but his his worst trait as a producer and i think the reason why his discography of production can be so inconsistent is that he's only as good as the artist that he works with he's a total yes man where if an artist is like hey i, I have this idea for a record this is what i want to do he's like you know what i'm gonna help you achieve this vision and and he doesn't have like his voice is almost his lack of voice and not being a good filter for artists bad ideas i mean fucking solar power by lord jesus christ like so many people should have said don't make this record it's a bad idea and yet here we are um and i think like to it to a smaller extent that's kind of the same deal for these like last two saint vincent records where just indulging in her her worst tendencies as a songwriter and as a as a producer especially like, i mean daddy's home was just first off terrible album name Terrible album name, terrible co album cover, just awful, awful record. You know, wanting to make this like 70s nostalgia throwback record, but you know, it doesn't, it, it sounds too clean and sterile to be the 70s. Just has no fucking edges, roughness or edges or anything that made St. Vincent stand out in the first place. Just feels like the, the emotion, the, the real raw emotions of like those, those, that, that three album run are just 
gone. You know, like money makes you fucking stupid. Like, and I, I'm not advocating for like, oh, artists shouldn't make any money or anything like that. But being becoming rich makes you fucking stupid sometimes. And I think that's what happened to St. Vincent, where she got money and she decided to indulge in her worst impulses and tendencies as a songwriter. And it's disappointing because she was so fucking good. And she's such like a, a foundational artist for me. And it's just so disappointing to see like what she's become where now, you know, she's just sort of like this go to kind of uh, cool indie artist. You, you go to St. Vincent, even though I don't think she's very cool at this point. Uh, she did a cover of Gloria. Uh, Glory Box by Portishead on the Tonight Show at the Roots. Which here's the thing: if you told me that ten years ago that she did that, I'd be like, "Holy shit! Yeah. Wow, I want to hear that. That sounds incredible." And now it's like, "Oh, like, do I want to hear that? Like, if, is in, she just going to ruin in this your fucking defense, song?" Maddie, I'm sure it is a good cover. In your defense, her most recent cover before that was, of course, her cover of Funky Town from the Minions Rise <laughs> of Guru soundtrack, <laughs> which of course brings it full circle because that was produced by jack antonoff um but no i don't i don't think you're being entirely unfair i think you have a little more frustration because you were way more in on early saint vincent i was never like out on her like i think strange mercy is a great record and i enjoy the self-titled a fair amount but i was just never like she was a big artist for you getting into indie music and so her fall from grace has a particular um sting for you whereas for me i sort of saw the writing on the wall well mass seduction is a record i think i like a tiny bit more than you but i also agree like was overrated and more importantly that record rollout that album was rolled out for like three years straight like there was like a year and a half of build-up to the release of it and then like an entire calendar year after it came out there was like that remixes record like i feel like she was touring or promoting that record for the entire time i was a student in college like from freshman year to me graduating um and so i think a lot of that has to do with me being sick of St. Vincent at this point, but it does not help that she released a really bad 70s pastiche record in which she cosplays as a trans woman on the cover of it. Uh, not great in general. Dating Carrie Brownstein, not even once. Um... (laughs) Cara Delevingne, like, right after two. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. It's... It's, I think money makes you stupid, everybody. It I, makes you so stupid. And I get, and I get why people, yeah, like you're saying with Jack Antonoff, that like he's just not someone that is going to say, hey, listen, don't do this. You know, like he. This, this is the man that la- that allowed reputation to happen. Exactly. Like, like he's never going to be the one to be the voice in the room to give it to you straight. And and I think that that is definitely. It's like why he works so well with Lana is because Lana is like the last person that needs to be directed or pushed in any direction she's like i have this completely singular like i know what i I want my music to be and so jack is just very good because he is capable of giving her what she wants and uh when it's someone like lord as you're saying who has absolutely no idea what she's trying to say um he's not going to be like hey what's the what's what's going on here let's work this out he's just going to be like yeah sounds good let's do it that that, that's it (laughs) That's all I got to say. I got into her, I guess, not long after Marry Me came out. And, like, I've seen her on a few different album cycles. Like, she did, uh, the first time I saw her was when she was touring Strange Mercy. And um, Cold Specs, this Canadian artist from uh, this uh, area in Toronto called Etobicoke, just, like, the west end of the city, was was opening for. And uh, Cold Specs 
blew me away. She's not going by that name anymore, and she's going by her, her birth name, Ladon. But she had a song that, thanks to the show Sons of Anarchy, if you go to the YouTube page, all the comments are just R.I.P. Opie. <laughs> that rules. I always, I always love that when all the YouTube comments are like, does anyone know, anyone else sent here from blah, blah, yeah, blah? Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful yeah. song. It's called, um... Uh, lay me down and it's it's haunting and and she's just a fantastic singer like one of the best singers to come out of this country but uh that this that St. Vincent show for for oh, fuck what was that record it was the third one uh strange mercy yeah uh, strange I, mercy. I, thank you I said it a second ago and immediately forgot it gushing over cold specs <laughs> um <laughs> that was the best one it was wild she was like a rock star and then she started hanging out with David Byrne uh, which I, I saw that show too, and it was it was fun, but it was very theatrical. Like all the D- David Byrne to a T, like and he, specifically him, and she was playing some songs that she wrote or wrote with him. But that one fucking album cycle and creative process seemed to have like really pushed her in a direction for the self titled record and the tour around it, which did not grip me as much, but it was still good. It was still felt stronger than a lot of indie artists. Like I associate her on one side of indie indie rock and on the other side is like andrew bird and the national from that that period in which they came from the dark uh, dark was the night crew like everyone who was on that record is from that kind of like area but yeah like exactly what you're saying she went from congleton who had these very interesting approach to production and he you can you can see it when he worked with anna kelvey and when he did, did uh, the sharon van etten record like he has a stamp on it that really pushes mm-hmm. each of those artists uh, approach to an interesting place that puts it on a different level or even just a different vibe than their normal output. But St. Vincent doing David Bowie knockoffs on Daddy's Home was, yeah, incredibly disappointing. It also felt like she was trying to do the same thing Timber Tomber did with the song Grifting. Mm -hmm. And I felt Grifting did the David Bowie plastic soul style grittier and much more effectively than St. Vincent tried to do on a whole album. It just, it felt repetitive. Mm -hmm. Congleton is someone that's fascinating to talk about too because... He has a similarly, for me, not to the same degree as Antonov, a kind of weirdly mixed record, but I, I don't think it, it's not quite the same as Antonov, where Antonov it's like 100%, like, what is the person mm-hmm. bringing you to it? For me, at Congleton, sometimes, like, his records are just, like, amazing, and then sometimes it feels a little too, either too compressed or too just, like, I don't know, busy, oh, like... Yeah. He has a really interesting, like, like he, sometimes it'll just really, really work for the right thing, and sometimes it won't, and it feels like a lot of the time, whether it works or not, it feels less predictable to me than other producers. Like, with Antonoff, usually I have a sense going into the record, like, is this going to be a good Antonoff or a bad Antonoff? And Congleton feels more of a, like, he did the, he did the, uh, the War Paint album from last year, which is, like, a really underrated record, just, like, a really awesome, vibey indie rock record that has has just like a really gorgeous sound to it but then he also produced and engineered the new Whitney album Spark and I'm gonna bl- <laughs> I'm gonna blame that on Whitney 100% that oh, yeah. sucks but like he will just drop a dud and uh, but that he's so prolific that it never really feels like it never really feels like I'm it lowers my like esteem of him in the same way but he does have a lot of like he was an engineer on my two favorite Lana records like he helped 
on Blue Bannisters and Norman fucking Rockwell, which I think are the two best sounding Lana records that he's that she's done with Jack for sure. And like he mm-hmm. but then he also did the mixing on Whole New Mess, the Angel Olsen record that was like the stripped down versions of the No, he, well, he, no he, he did he did all mirrors also. He did all, he did all mirrors. mirrors too. And which all is a record, is a record, that, record I, that I that I famously do not like very much. I think that's a, I think that's I, I'm, a, in, I'm in I'm in the same boat with that record. And so like and it is fascinating to me what works and what doesn't with him and depending on who he's working with in any particular, but he's worked with so many different people. Like it's a really yeah. fascinating discography. I guess he's he just, yeah, very prolific guy. And I think like he's made, well, some I think he great... did, he did the symbol guitars record. He yeah. did. I think like... his output. Uh, yeah. His, his output in like the, tw- like the early to mid 2010s is like, that's it's, it's an all time run for like a, pro- like a rock producer. Yeah, it's, it's been a little more inconsistent than, since yeah. then. I think because a couple of like the um, like some of those like teen indie bands like shit like Wallows and the Regrets. No, no offense to either of those bands, but I think that's definitely like he's been a little more inconsistent. Like just the the right the right artists aren't coming to him. I mean, but that that that's just that's just like that's probably like pay the bills type stuff, you know? Exactly. Like, I exactly. I don't I don't think that he's putting his heart and soul into the 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 work he's doing on those Wallows records. Most likely, yeah. But again, he's done again. Just a lot of again. I'm just looking. I'm, I'm looking through his all music stuff right now. And again, just like I am too. Yeah, sounds great. There's just a lot of really awesome records here. The run from Saint Vincent, self-titled, To Be Kind, Swans, Abyss, Chelsea Wolf, Lower Dens. Uh, then you get a uh, Flock of Dimes, Symbol Eat Guitars, AJJ, Explosion in the Sky, Another Swans record, Always Antisocialities, uh, Juju Forget, Mass Seduction we just talked about but like that that's a crazy run right there and there's even some records where i'm like oh shit he produced like the the mother's record render another ugly method i had no idea produced that record he stays working like he has been incredibly busy for the last decade yeah because he have like i mean i'm looking at his 2022 credits he has one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen six he's like, like he has like 16 credits from just 2022 like he's again just uh, stayed stay busy which good good for him like totally. good for him but yeah that that's that's it that's all I, think, I think i think i've exhausted my opinions today of everything that's it. Gene, do you have anything no well jacqueline cool. maddie thank you so much for joining us today uh this is a lot of fun happy happy to be on this is a fun chat yeah and thank you for introducing us to this record this was really cool oh yeah i mean i i i'm surprised that it was new to both of you but i'm so happy that i got to introduce it to you and talk to you about it because it's yeah a big touch point for me in my evolution as an electronic music fan and listener and so it was cool to get to revisit it for this podcast and if you want to listen to me ramble more you can listen to the indie heads podcast which maddie and i are co-hosts of uh you can find it on spotify and apple and wherever you get your podcasts and you can find me on twitter.com at horse underscore jeans i write about music i post inane bullshit um you can find my writing there and stuff like that and maddie where can we find you uh again indies podcast anywhere you find podcasts uh again we've got a patreon get episodes 48 hours early get into our discord server which is uh, a lot of fun and will give you brain worms more likely than not and then uh twitter at movie and prince uh again do some writing here and there but mostly uh these jays just doing doing the podcast and uh having having fun hosting that every week Hello there, critters and creatures. It is I, Piers Ulvai, a queer-affected-based clarinetist of the post-progressive, ambient, avant-garde variety, 
flying all around southern Ontario. The piece I provided is called Corral. It is the first movement from my first official release called The Vigil Sequences, released in August of 2021. I would like to read first what I've written on my Bandcamp page, like the liner notes that I provided to give you context before I go into more detail, specifically for Corral. Dark stillness of nights can inspire the brightest movement of sounds. I had to share these semi-improvised pieces. I knew they were special, especially in the manner they were made, going against my established nature, reaching within my hidden reservoir to shower truly expressive soundscapes with my current sonic equipment. Concocted and recorded over four evenings straight in December 2020, each recording is quite distinct yet connected with a pulsing drone throughout. Corral opens the collection with a neoclassical soundtrack that pulls between consonants and dissonance in smooth fashion. Airbender teleports you to the high altitudes of the mountain temples, steampunk cities, a meditation amongst the thriving wind. Inquit Serpentis expresses angst, despair, and anger based on the legendary Greek creature, the Hydra and Rainbow Balloon Deluxe takes us back to the sky with radiant light rays and vibrant multicolor helium-filled shiny spheres. The EP was mixed by David Stein of Copper Sound Studios out in Guelph and mastered by Brent O'Toole in Toronto. And I've dedicated this EP to you, my dear friends and family, for all the love and support these past couple years and my progression with expressing more of my genuine feathered wings to you and to myself. Now, heading back to how this EP came together, it was originally all composed for a special radio collection at Trent Radio in Peterborough, Ontario, for their winter solstice radio special. They brought together a lot of ambient artists to record music for that evening in 2020, and thus how it was recorded in December of that time. My usual nature, as I had mentioned, is more thoughtful and also just my brain process of things is a little slower sometimes. I do have a learning difference, learning disability. And so, as I mentioned, I recorded all these four tracks over four evenings. I wanted to be as minimalist as possible, and I think I really accomplished that. So I'm very happy I was able to make amazing music just within that short span of time. And because of that being so special, I wanted to have this as an album. All the tracks were created just with my, what I've termed, affected bass clarinet. It's So it's my bass clarinet hooked up to guitar effect pedals. So I have reverb, delay, multi-effects, a fuzz face, uh, different arrangements that I came up with. Um, with some concepts with each track to what I had been experimenting with my sound with the clarinet at the time. But in contrast, actually, Corral in particular, I had, being this, the first, like, official album and maybe the first official way of introducing myself to people, I did not have any effects at all. I wanted it more to demonstrate my uh, multi-layering of different clarinet layers. 
more like a classical ensemble, chamber ensemble, pretty much. This presented what my sound was without effects to then evolve and people can hear what exactly my bass clarinet would sound like in later pieces with effect pedals. As mentioned, these pieces were semi-improvised. This is sometimes based on if I've chosen like a key to focus on or a pattern of pitches to work with, or if I've had an idea of passages and figures that I've wanted to use, which is more apparent in later pieces. For chorale, it was more set in a major key, and I started with a bass track of the bass clarinet, and when I've added more bass clarinet layers, I just interacted and improvised alongside them. And while it's in a major key, as mentioned, it does, I do go into chromaticism and go into eerie distortion and stuff like that, which adds to a more emotional, romantic journey, I would say, or neoclassical, as mentioned in my, in my band camp write-up, like a soundtrack or two. For all these reasons, I thought Chorale was the best piece to choose from to provide the guys of Output 111 to do a remix on because it wasn't as crowded with the effects um, like the other pieces. So they could add their own uh, style and weird sounds to it, which I've listened to it. And it's very cool that how their perspective comes interacting with my chorale piece. So I am very happy with that. And again, happy that they reached out to me for this special uh, reworking of my piece. Thank you so much. (laughs) 